How far do you think ConvertKit can go? I think we can definitely hit 100 million a year in revenue. This is an absolute masterclass. We sat down with Nathan Barry, the founder of ConvertKit, who's grown it from zero to 200 million plus using frameworks that anyone can copy. He very kindly broke the whole thing down for us. His monthly revenue growth from 1,500 a month in 2013 to 3 million a month in 2023. We had this forecast of like getting better consistently and and we did not hit it at all. And even people on our team were like, are we gonna keep doing this? Like, yeah. His four-step system to build wealth on the internet and the flywheel framework that will change the trajectory of any business. I am following this playbook with ConvertKit. Yeah, I think it'll be a $320 million valuation. And so this episode is pure gold. It's already completely changed the way I think about my own business. I really hope you enjoy it. If you do, please subscribe for more. Let's dive in. Okay, Nathans, thanks so much for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. I thought it would be fun just to start with the ConvertKit revenue. Mm -hmm. So you start this in 2013 and you say you want to hit 5K a month revenue, yeah. monthly revenue in six months. Yes. And then 2013, the end of 2013, you're doing like 1,500 a month. Yeah, it wasn't the, the 5K that it was supposed to be. <laughs> wasn't the dream start. 2014, it's still not the dream start. We're still stuck at like right. 1,500 a month in monthly revenue. And then 2015, I think you start it at like 2,000 a month. That's right. So you've yep. made a, a little bit of progress, but this definitely isn't the, 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 the quick and easy way, route to 5K a month. But by the end of that year, you're doing 100,000 mm -hmm. in MMR, MRR. 2017, you're doing 500,000 a month in revenue. Fast forward to this year, you're doing 3 million every month yep. in recurring revenue and you're on track to do 40 million a year. Um, and the business is worth 200 million yeah. plus. Yeah. How does it feel looking back through those those numbers? Yeah, well, I mean, it takes a long time for something to get started. There's, there's the idea, uh, a friend of mine talks about, like show up every day for at least two years because so many people are saying like, oh, I'm going to create this thing and I work on it for a couple of days. You know, I work on it like three weekends here and there or a month of, of work and ah, it doesn't get traction. Like, oh, I guess this creator thing's not for me. And like in my story, it's like fairly consistent work for a long time before it gets traction. And uh, yeah, it's, it's pretty wild, right? Like things compound, turns out. Yeah. And I always had the inspiration of MailChimp, which is a competitor of ours where if you look at their story, they were founded in 2001. And everyone knew about them starting in 2009 when they launched their free plan. So they had eight years of not much of anything. I think it might've taken them eight years to get to that first million a year in revenue. Like maybe when they launched their free plan, they were a little bit bigger than that, but not much. And so they were grinding it out and now what they're 22 years in they're doing a billion a year in revenue and so it's like okay what if i just stick with this for a really really long time um and so that's that's pretty inspiring i think to keep going on that level how far do you think convert kit can go yeah that's a good question i think we can definitely hit 100 million a year in revenue mm -hmm. um We'll see about the creator space in general. On one hand, the creator space is huge. On the other hand, it's not that big. You own what, like 90%? Oh, yeah, probably 85 at this point. 85 owns the rest. So you own 85% of a business that's worth 200 million. Mm -hmm. 
So it's pretty much been bootstrapped from the get, the beginning. Yeah, there's no outside capital. Yeah. And that is one of the things I think just about you in general, which is amazing, is you've pretty much documented the entire journey. Yeah. So for anyone out there who who's thinking, well, that would be that would be nice. Mm-hmm. Um 30, 40 million a year. Every single stage of the journey is documented. Why do you why do you do that? Like I can I can go on bare metrics now and mm-hmm. look at your revenue numbers today. Right. And I can look back right from the beginning. Yeah. So I always I don't know how the culture on money is here in the UK, but in the US people don't really talk about money mm-hmm. very much. Right. And so you end up with a bunch of side effects of that. One, like when I was first getting a job, I had no idea what a good salary was. Mm. Right. I'd worked, you hear people talk about hourly wage. You know, I worked fast food at Wendy's, right? And that was for six dollars an hour. And like you know, you'd see something advertised, like, oh, that's for eleven dollars an hour. But salaries didn't make any sense to me. And so when I was getting my first like salary design position, I had no idea what what to ask for. I ended up getting that for sixty thousand dollars a year, which was a a really great salary at the time. But I didn't know I would have happily accepted forty. It's just kind of how the negotiation all worked out. Um because people don't talk about it. Yeah. And so I always wanted more conversation about it to know what's possible. And then there was a moment in my journey of building digital products where, so I had uh, designed and built a bunch of iPhone apps. I was doing free- freelance design and I wanted to build an audience and sell my first ebook. And I was starting to think about that. And on the same day, these two designers, Sasha Grief and Jared Drysdale, both wrote books about design and they happened to release it on Hacker News, which is why Combinator's like Reddit uh, alternative. And they released it on the same day and it was pure chance. They did not know each other at all. Uh, and they had entirely different pricing models, which is really interesting. Sasha sold his for uh, like $6 and $12, like depending mm-hmm. on which package you want. And Jared sold his for I think $39. And so then Jason Cohen, who's the founder of WP Engine, thought that was super interesting. He's like, why don't you come on my blog and explain to everyone like how the launch went, why you made it, and then why your pricing model is better than the other one. Mm-hmm. You know, like, should you go for a low price and sell a lot of copies? Uh, or should you go for a higher price and, and uh, you know, maybe earn more but sell fewer copies? And I read those two articles and I saw uh, designers with small audiences who self-published a book. Mm-hmm. And I went, that could be me. Yeah. Right? Like that was, the rep- representation was perfect there. Mm. And so then I ended up um, writing my own book, The After the Handbook. And when I released that, it made $19,000 in the, um, so $12,000 in the first day, $19,000 in the first week. And so it did about double the revenue that theirs did. And I actually combined their two pricing models. Yeah. I went for a higher price and multiple packages. Yeah. And then later I came back on Jason Cohen's blog and wrote a guest post of like how my pricing model, yeah. like how they both had the key ingredients. They just needed to combine it. Um, but I think that idea of like paying it forward by sharing the numbers and telling the story is really important. And because people see it and go like, oh, I could do that. And even if like here, seeing someone who does it, who looks like you, if it has things in common with you, like that's really, really important. So like in this case, I deeply resonated with um, Jared and Sasha because 
they were in my exact space. Yeah. Experience level, right? It's one thing if we're out here talking about, oh, I did a course launch and it made a million dollars. You're like, yeah. okay. It's not achievable. It, it's not achievable for me now. Yeah. Um, so Sasha and Jared had, had this very achievable example for me. They had made like seven and $8,000 mm -hmm. in the first two days. Um, so even another thing like, uh, there's a content creator, Rachel Rogers, who I'm starting a new podcast with yeah. called Billion Dollar Creator. And she is this um, lawyer turned content creator. She's a black woman, just absolutely amazing content creator. And I know that there's an entirely different group of people that are going to see her story and go, ah, that could be me. Yeah. Right. And so part of the reason we're doing the show together, um, one is we just have a great time every time we hang out. Yeah. Like we should record this. Um, but then the other is that we can bring ideas from these different worlds together. And so I think in sharing revenue numbers, you're going to get people who can basically see that and go, oh, that could be me. Or even like yeah. you're talking about barometrics, which is our, our public dashboard. And probably at some point that will come down because yeah. it's too transparent. <laughs> it, it, might, it might get to the point <laughs> it's too It's almost like it doesn't actually, in a way, it doesn't apply to so many people. It's not as accessible. Right. What I think is amazing is like you've just given example of you you, you launched an ebook and I think in 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 one day you've made twelve thousand dollars. Right. To someone who's listening to this who hears these things, wh what should give them the confidence that they can do that? Is it something that anyone can do? I think yeah. I think your co-host is a great example of that, right? Her story. Yeah. So I I think anyone. I don't think anyone can do it. It's very hard. Yeah. The way I phrased the other day on a podcast is that it is simple, but not easy. Yeah. Right. The, the actions that you need to take are pretty straightforward, right. Of creating very consistently, um, learning how to package that up. Uh, like we, at this point I've seen so many people do it. Right? For ConvertKit, I've got 50,000 paying customers. And so a huge number of them are making you know, a full-time living up through sums of money that we would just think are absolutely ridiculous um, if we were outside of this world. And like, I see it so often across every single niche. I know that it can be done. At the same time, what all of these people have in common is like they're willing to stick with it much longer than the average person is. Yeah. And so like the like the things that you need to do are simple. Yeah. But it is not easy. It's just the same thing like like um, getting fit. Yeah. It's pretty simple. Yeah. You'll see these threads maybe on on uh, Reddit or something. It's like, oh, some people who lost weight, how did you do it? And it's really like, okay, well, I started, you know, uh, I changed a little bit what I, what I ate. And then I added in like short walks. And then I extended that, you know, and like you read it and you could in like eight bullet points, you'd be like, oh, okay, that makes sense. Yeah. But it's actually difficult to do that consistently over the, you know, two, three, four years that it takes to yeah. achieve results. But but for people who do, who, who are interested in that, I think you have this amazing framework, which is like the ladders of wealth creation, yeah. which is to my mind, I was reading it this morning. It's almost like the perfect mm -hmm. blueprint or a really good blueprint kind of framework for someone who's interested in entrepreneurship. And it quite clearly has kind of four levels, almost a bit like a computer game. Yep. And if you can complete the levels in order of one another, these things become easier, right? Yeah. Do you want to like, kind of walk through that? Bit? Yeah. Yeah. So the first thing, 
when I observe something in the world that doesn't, or that, that makes sense to me intuitively, but then I try to explain it and I can't, yeah, that bothers me. Yeah. And so I have these like flagship essays and there's three of them that I've written. Uh, Thought I was Wealth Creation is the first one. Billion Dollar Creator is the second. And then Creator Flywheels is the third. And they're all something that I intuitively knew or had, had observed but couldn't quite explain. Mm-hmm. And so then I dove deep to get to the point where I could explain it. Um, and so Ladders of Wealth Creation is basically trying to explain how wealth is made mm. and how it can be a repeatable process and some of these pitfalls that I see along the way. So for example, like why is it that people often have small wins along the way? You know, maybe they uh, are doing a service business and then they, you know, figure out how to sell that those services at a bigger scale on the internet. And then maybe they do like a, a product, like a WordPress plugin that's in an ecosystem. And then later they j- go into a SaaS app. Like I had that experience of moving through these different stages. Like why are more people successful that way? Yeah. Instead of if they jump straight to like, hey, let's build a marketplace. Let's build Facebook. Let's build, let's build Facebook. Facebook. Let's build eBay. Right? Yeah. Like how many people, I don't know if this is still a cliche, but with early, you know, in 2010 to 2012, so many people would be like, hey, you do things on the internet, right? As this idea, it's Uber for whatever. Yeah. And intuitively I'm like, oh God, do not do that. Yeah. Right? But then I'm like, okay, how do I articulate this? And so that's, what the ladders is. And the first principle basically of the ladders wealth creation is that making money is a skill. Mm-hmm. And really it's a combination of like hundreds or thousands of small skills. And Jason Freed from Basecamp talks about this of in the same way that playing music is a skill, you wouldn't expect to sit down at the piano with no experience and just play something yeah. amazing, right? It's not going to happen. Mm. But then we're like, I don't know, just sit, like sit down at the computer and make money. Yeah. You know, you're like, how? And so if we believe that making money is a combination of skills and we need to find the environments where you can learn these skills gradually. And so that first ladder is basically uh, time for money. Yeah. Where you are, you're working for someone, Mm. right? It could be a landscaping job. It could be all the way up through to um, being a professional in the office. But the skills you need there are you need to show up on time. Mm Mm-hmm. You need to be able to listen to feedback and implement it. Yeah. You know, be presentable uh, and be reliable, those types of things. And then in your particular, you know, for an accountant, there's a bunch of particular skills there. All right, but that's one set of skills. And that, the the income is almost always going to be directly tied to your time. Mm. That And so there's very this little... This is time for money, basically. Time for money. Time for money. There's no, there's very little to no leverage yeah. in that. Um, type uh, on that ladder. Yeah, the next ladder, if you move across, goes a little bit taller, and that's where you have your own services business. Mm-hmm. And the bottom rung on that is like, I'm doing freelance work for you. Yeah. Could be uh, video editing, copywriting, design, any mm-hmm. of these things, right? But for twenty dollars an hour or a hundred dollars an hour, it doesn't really matter. Like I'm doing hourly service based work. Yeah, um, I got to learn a bunch of new skills, right? Like I need to. Uh, probably file paperwork with the government. Mm-hmm. L- like in the US, you know, if you're filing for an LLC, it is absurdly easy. Yeah. Once you know how to do once it. Once you know how to do it. Right. But you have to learn that for the first time and and, and it's super intimidating. Um, and then, you know, how are you going to collect payments? How are you going to invoice? Basic accounting, right? There's a whole bunch of skills there. And this is just to get our first client. 
Yeah. Right. How do you send an invoice? Yeah. Um, net 30. What does that mean? You know, should it be due on receipt? You know, all of this stuff. Right. So we learned those skills. We've got our services business. The next rung up from that is um, where you start to charge by the project. Yeah. And so this is our first point of leverage mm. where we're actually getting a little bit of a disconnect between what we charge. Um, and, the, and how much of our time we're spending. And how much of our time we're spending. This is like the productized service. Yeah, so we'll get into that in the next ladder because there's okay. another another little flip on that. But yeah. the this rung is really important yeah. because it introduces leverage. Yeah. So this is you might not be doing the work. Well, in this case, the difference is, say uh, I did freelance web design, yeah. right? Um, charge $50 an hour. Mm-hmm. If it takes five hours, you know, it's yeah. 500 bucks. If it takes 10... That's not the math, but you get the idea. Yeah. <laughs> Five would be 250. Um, but uh, I'm always going to earn at that same mm-hmm. hourly rate. If I say, hey, I will design your website for $2,000, yeah. no matter how many hours it takes, yeah. we have leverage. We have a disconnection point. Mm-hmm. The important thing to realize, everyone thinks about and talks about leverage is a good thing. Mm-hmm. Leverage is neither good nor bad. Mm-hmm. It, it just is. Yeah. It's just this thing that will magnify whatever else that you're doing. Mm-hmm. So if you're having good outcomes and you leverage on that, great, they'll be even better. If you have bad outcomes with leverage, they're going to be worse. Yeah. Um, and so in this case, right, if I charge a $2,000 project and uh, it takes me 10 hours, right? Huge win. My hourly rate is fantastic. 4X what it was before. If it takes me 100 hours because I screwed something up, mm-hmm. well, that's on me and I have all of that risk. Mm-hmm. So th- that has that first leverage point. Um, and then up from there, the next one would be like hiring a team. Yeah. Right. And so you're doing uh, project-based work or hourly work with a team. And there you've got to learn the skills of um, hiring and managing. Yeah. You know, there's so many things. That... Mm-hmm. But then the next ladder is a productized service. And I think a lot of people are like, oh, what's the difference between service yeah. work and productized? Like that, that's a very small difference. Yeah in theory, but it's a very large difference yeah. in the skills you need to learn. And the reason is, if I'm running my web design agency, I get clients by talking to people one-to-one. Mm-hmm. So I have to learn here how to sit down for coffee with you, explain the value of what I'm providing, all of that. Yeah. A productized service, I've got to sell it through the internet. Mm-hmm. So I've got to learn how do you make a landing page? Yeah. How do you write copy? Mm-hmm. How do you package it in an interesting way? Well, testimonials matter <laughs> all of a sudden. You know, case studies that aren't like, oh, here's what we did for a client, but it's like something you could just download and read and be like, oh, I want that outcome. So there's a ton of skills mm-hmm. that have to happen there. And then the next set of learning is on the delivery of it, right? Instead of everything being bespoke for one client, like how do we actually productize the offering? Um, and so those skills of making the offer more repeatable and then... Um, you know, selling at a distance. Yeah. Those are quite difficult things. And then the final ladder is just straight up products. Yeah. Right. And that could start as sim- simple as uh, something like an ebook, which is fairly straightforward to um, to build out and could get as complex all the way at the top as like a SaaS app or a marketplace. Um, and then another interesting angle in that is like, if the product is being sold into an existing um, ecosystem, mm-hmm. So my first products were iPhone apps. Yeah. And like there is a marketplace there and you can kind of insert it in there. Yeah. Um, I also have a few Airbnbs, mm-hmm. right? So if I 
I don't have to generate demand for the Airbnb. I just have to make a good listing and yeah. a good product and I stick it out there and I'm going to, you know, people are like Boise, Idaho for these dates and my Airbnb will come up. So you have that. It's easier if you're putting it into a marketplace versus the other thing. But one key thing, if we think about these ladders building up all the way across, what you're going to have is people who have the skills from ladders like one and two and the lower rungs of that who are saying like, let's go and tackle this a marketplace, yeah. Yeah. which is at the very top yeah. of the last ladder. Yeah. And then or, like, well, or, even, or even setting like, even setting an ebook is right. like, you're skipping, you're skipping the landing page yeah. that you've created for the productized service. Right. You're skipping the customer support that you might have had at the agency. Mm-hmm. Um, all of these lessons, like it's almost like each lesson, each stage has all these lessons and skills that you learn and develop so that when you do the next one, you're ready for it. Yep. Uh, and that's not to say that you have to go through every step uh, all no. the way along. You just have to learn the skills. Yeah. So if you want to jump from ladder two all the way up to halfway through ladder four, just expect that there's a lot more to learn and it's going to take a long time. Yeah. And so that might feel really, really discouraging. And so like this is explaining, here's why, <laughs> right? You just took this giant leap. And it might have taken you three years to work your way through these different ladders and you're trying to do this in one leap. So probably just expect that that leap is going to take three years. Yeah. And be really deliberate about the skills that you have to learn yeah. along the way. And to be to be really patient. And yeah. You have, um, I mean, I'm I'm basically going through these ladders. Mm-hmm. So I, 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 I did my, like, I, I had my job. I left that and did contracting. Yep. So that's probably like the pay per hour. Um, and since then I've started an agency, mm-hmm. um, and that's going really well. I've grown it to like 20 K a month. Um, and possibly the next step is, uh, productized. Yep. I um, think so. and again, I was reading through, you basically have like these eight principles that come that, that really spoke to me, um, for like working through the ladders. Can we go into them and maybe start with like, one of them is when I had my high paying contractor job. To start the agency, I'd actually sacrifice my my earning potential because I'm investing right. uh, what I'm what I'm earning into hiring a team. Right. So, what what are the kind of like eight rules for climbing these ladders? Yeah. Well, the first thing that I was just noticing and thinking about skills. Right. We're sitting down here re- recording um, here in London because of a really important skill that you learned, yeah. which is cold email. Yeah. Right. And most people are like, oh, how would I do that? You know, what makes a good cold email? There's so many terrible cold emails out there. Yeah. Right. But you sent me a good cold email uh-huh. that started a conversation. And yeah. it's like, oh, I'm going to be in London. Right. And so now, now we're recording. Um, and so that is an important skill on ladder. I, I get ladder two, really. Yeah. And a lot of people will not learn that. Mm. And they're out here trying to scale their SaaS up. And they're like, I'm doing mass marketing and no one will buy it. Yeah. Know. Right. The difference between ConvertKit being at 2000 a month in revenue, like the one thing that we tweaked in there, well, there's a couple of small things, focused in on, on a specific niche and then send a lot of cold email, mm-hmm. right? So I went from trying to do mass marketing to very targeted cold email. And that, you know, took us from 2000 a month to 100,000 in, in basically a single year. And so like, it's really interesting watching you follow a similar playbook yeah. because you picked up on a skill that, that really, really matters. And can we just talk about cold email as well? Because yeah. what's the difference between content marketing and cold email? No. Uh, speaking to how, how big of the, an audience you're targeting, you know? Like, are you going one to many or one to one? Yeah. 
But also, isn't there something really important when you're, I've heard you basically saying that content marketing is great and right, it's a cheat code because mm -hmm. if you build an audience and how essentially how you start ConvertKit is you said, you already had a blog email list and you said, okay, I'm going to build an app and get it to 5K a month in right. six months. And so you you create an unfair advantage because you have a load of people who are following who along. Who are following along, yep. they're interested, and they might check out the product and turn into customers. So it's obviously a cheat code in that respect, but then it's, it also has its downfalls, right? Because people, myself included, will think, well, it's easier for me to make an Instagram reel, post it to TikTok or Twitter or whatever, and then just hope that that, that that some customers come across me and find mm -hmm. me. Whereas if I'm speaking to my customers, they give me feedback right. um, in a way that you don't really get with content marketing. Yeah, so especially if you think of a, let's say we're making that jump from services to productized services. Yeah. Right, a one-to-one -one sale, right? The one-to-one -one sale, you could do a cold email to let's get on a call. Mm -hmm. You get to tweak the message exactly to you're like, oh, I can see... The thumbnails on your um, YouTube videos aren't that great. Like, yeah, we offer a bunch of things, but I get like I'm going to lead with this one. Yeah, right. I can customize it. If I have a landing page, I can't customize it. There are some tools that, that you could, but but you can't effectively do it. Yeah, um, at least not easily. And so what that means is I have to write landing page copy that is generic but doesn't feel generic, uh -huh. and that's really hard. And you don't get any feedback on that landing page copy, mm -hmm. right? Someone clicks in from Twitter or even that cold email and they look at that and they just hit the back button. Yeah. And so like, imagine if we're having a conversation, you're like, hey, sign up for my agency. Yeah. And I like just stared at you. Yeah. Yeah. And without saying anything, just like got up and yeah. walked, like carefully stepped over, you know, past yeah. the tripods and, and walked out the door. Yeah. Like that'd be really rude. You're not, mm. like you're socially not allowed to do that. Yeah. But that's what happens every time someone visits your sales page and they decide not to buy. They're just like, back button. Mm. No feedback, none of that. And so that makes it really, really challenging. And so that's why I like cold outreach, one-to-one -one sales, because you get to test your marketing copy. Yeah, You get to go, okay, what resonates? You know, oh, people don't care at all about thumbnails. All right, well, maybe let's try this other thing. You know, whatever it is. And you get to take notes and um, there's this idea in copywriting that often the best copy is written by salespeople rather than marketers uh -huh. because they get to test, like I get to actually see the look on your face when I position something this way. Yeah. And I do that, you know, five times a day uh, across all these sales calls. And then I'm like, okay, I think I'm going to like try this messaging. Yeah. And that's actually how we came across um, all of our messaging for flywheels, which is something we can talk about more later. But it came from, I realized every time that I was talking to a creator and I drew out the like broken flywheel that they were operating on now mm -hmm. and what it could be, mm -hmm. like they just lit up. Mm -hmm. And so then if you look, and we now have videos on this, we now have so much um, content and messaging around it because creators are like, I want that. Yeah. Uh, and that came from a sales driven process. Yeah. So. That gets us pretty far off of the eight principles, but um, <laughs> it, does, it, it, it does. But it's, it's, it's interesting because I think you've, you've also spoken about this where when you're starting ConvertKit, you, you have these calls with mm -hmm. prospects and you talk them through um, what, you're, what you're planning 
it's a super insightful process. How did you how did you run that? There was like a couple of questions that you ask, and actually you don't ask, which I think is more important because you you let them tell you exactly what their pain points are. Um, that's super interesting. It'd be really great to hear how you ran that process of of product discovery, um, but also the moment when you then like ask them to actually pay for it. Yeah. So the question I like the most is what's frustrating you. Yeah. So I would start out with this. I would collect lead lists in two different ways. I would either go for a specific niche yeah. of of content creators. And basically, you know, we're like paleo recipe bloggers who are women, right? Mm-hmm. Like I can, I can list out all of that. I can't list out all the bloggers, but I, I can list out in that niche. Especially if it's a niche that I already have like one or two. Yeah. And then, you know, I can name drop a relatively small name mm-hmm. and it means something mm-hmm. in that space. Kind of the second thing. Um, so in your case, that would have been like James Clear maybe or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. And he he came on to ConvertKit later. But um, and so later on, I had lots of names. Yeah. But uh, like you had a men's fashion blog. Yeah. That was doing well. So it's like, okay, what other men's fashion blogs are in yeah. New York City who might have heard of this person? Mm-hmm. And if we're product work for this person, it could probably work from there. So we basically drew a bunch of these small niches. The other thing that I would do is I would look at uh, use tools like Built With mm-hmm. to go scrape the web for uh, Mailchimp users, Aweber users, Infusionsoft users, and then you know basically grouping people in those two ways. Then I do send them an email and say like, "Hey, um, is there anything frustrating with Mailchimp?" The reason I ask is I made this product called ConvertKit, um, you know, that I started after using Mailchimp, and so I just have a couple sentences, and it's used by X, Y, and Z. Um, and so in doing that, it would usually get a pretty decent response, probably a 30% response uh-huh. rate. Um, and, but the biggest thing is focusing on the frustrations and people would say like, oh, it's, it's really hard to organize my list. You know, I don't know how to like give away a sample chapter of my book and then have an automated follow-up sequence. Like all the same things that I encountered. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that made to it like a really natural transition into a sales process. So then you get on a call. And then kind of the important point was going to the pull from the call. We like talk through the process and then I'd usually be like, okay, like let's sign up, you know, let's do this. And that's when I lost every single deal. Yeah. Like they all fell apart at that point. Yeah. Cause it turns out it's a lot of work. Yeah. We're like, oh, this is exciting. They're like, oh, no, you know, like I'm just not going to do it. Yeah. And I, no matter how much I try to convince people like, oh, it's not that hard. And then I like list out what to do. And I was like, actually, that does sound hard, yeah. <laughs> you know? And so finally, one day out of desperation, I just said like, I'll do it all, the whole switch for you for free. Mm-hmm. And they were like, ah, okay. Yeah. Because I think there are a lot of things that you could object to, but they'd pinned all their, like, all their reasons no on this one thing. And it's like all this pressure leading up against the door. And then you like o- open the door and it's just like, well, so they're like, okay. Because you can give a hundred reasons why you're not going to yeah. do it. But to the point of uh, our example, right? I'm asking you to sign up in person. Like you have to give a reason. Yeah. And the, you can't just like hang up the Skype call. Um, now we use Zoom, but back yeah. then it was Skype. <laughs> and so they gave a reason. It was the difficulty of switching almost every time. And so then I could take that reason away and say, I'll do it for you for free. And those accounts were terribly unprofitable, mm-hmm. right? Like $50 a month. Mm-hmm. Then if you're spending 
10 hours to switch over an account, even five hours, right? Like our hourly rate on this is garbage. Yeah. But I found that every, every account that I got made the next one the tiniest bit easier to get. Yeah. Right. So that compounded went from 2000 a month, 2,500 to 3000 to 5,000 up from there. And then about like the 15,000 a month is when like word of mouth started to kick in and yeah. we got momentum. Um, and that flywheel started to spin. So in that sales process, it was really figuring out, okay, how can I overcome the biggest objection? But an important thing, other times I would lead, I might actually make this mistake now again, actually. Interesting. I would lead with solving that objection. Yeah. And it wouldn't work as well. Yeah. So if if early in the process, I'm like, hey, blah, 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 here's this whole thing, here's what's good, oh, and we'll migrate you for free and all that. Yeah. Right? They're going to have a different objection. Mm. That might be harder for me to overcome. Yeah. And so the times I had the best success is when I let them pin it all on one objection, then I could remove. Yeah. Rather than solving that, that early. And then they find something else. Yeah. And they find something else that might be. <laughs> yeah. I don't, want the, I, don't want, I don't want price to be the thing that yeah. they yeah. settle on. Like, that's not so good. Um, so that's interesting. We, I, we might be talking about our concierge migration process a little too much <laughs> yeah. early on right now. But you still have that today, which is interesting. Mm-hmm. The white oh, yeah. glove, the white glove, the white white glove handover. I just have a team of five people that does it all. It's no longer me. It's like logged into their WordPress, and, you know, the site and copying and pasting. Yeah, it, switching everything over. Um, let's let's do the principles. Okay. So extra extra time and money need to be reinvested when you're going yeah. through these different stages. What does what does that mean? Well, so many people. If you've heard the phrase, it takes money to make money. Yeah. On one hand, that's a total cop-out and it's not true at all. And that's some as an excuse that people say when they want reasons that like they are failing on their, their journey for entrepreneurship. On the other hand, it's entirely true. Yeah. And a lot of these things do cost money in order to start. And so, you know, in the article I talked about a friend who is building out an Airbnb. Mm-hmm. Right. He has this detached garage and he's uh, building out into like a studio apartment that he can rent on Airbnb. That costs money. He got to that point by saving up, right? So from his his day job and then working extra on the side, he is saving up money and setting it aside and doing a bunch of the work himself. But without $10,000 to, you know, over like six months to, to remodel that, it, it can't happen. Mm. And I remember being in, a, in an Uber um, in Seattle and this guy was talking about why he was driving for Uber and building things up on the side. And I just, I love the story, the way he talked about it. He was like, oh, I'm, already driving into the office in downtown Seattle and I found that I can usually pick up a ride from the airport yeah. and like make this extra money. And I was like, oh, I love this. Where's this going? Like, so that he can then start his dream business. And, yeah. and he was like, yeah. And like, I, I bought a new sound system and I love it. And I was kind of like, oh. And he's like, yeah. And after that, I'm going to buy like a drone. Uh-huh. And I was like, oh, with the drone. So that like, if we're going we're gonna to start an aerial photography business, this is good. And he's like, yeah, it's just so fun to play with. And on one hand, like I'm happy for him. He figured out, yeah. like he loves his electronics and his toys and he figured out how to, how to get them without jeopardizing, yeah. you know, his finances. And on the other hand, like the, the entrepreneur in me just wanted like, okay, but like climb the ladder. Yeah. And he was lots of people are totally content not to. So yeah, like taking that money, right. If we're, if we're starting a podcast, right, we got to buy equipment we got to level up. Right. And so take that 500 bucks from the day job and buy the first you know, mic and preamp setup. And I think there's it. also, is, does that also apply? So at the moment, so 
I also make TikToks. Mm -hmm. And so we just got offered a brand deal. But I was, one reflection I ever had, we, we said yes to it. Uh, one reflection I had when we actually had to get out the camera to, to shoot them and it takes an hour and it's probably like high, like highly paid work, right? We're, yeah. I don't know, there might be like 500 pounds for this hour um, of my time. However, I'm just creating more work for myself because this is a monthly commitment that I've got to do. Whereas if I actually spend that hour oh. creating a product or right. a digital product or something that's there for, a, for, for much longer, that's almost like another version of this in a way, right? It's like you, yep. want, you there's a difference between spending that extra time to earn money versus like um, actually creating something that's going to be there that could give you just cash flow for a long time, which is is, is the same with the your friend who built the tiny the the tiny house, the Airbnb, yep. right? He's he's invested his time and money into something that then is just going to perpetually create him cash flow, right? Okay, so what's interesting in there? There's usually two main things that you can get out of any business venture. Yeah. Um, the results, you know, the the skills from it, um, or and or the I guess I phrase that differently. It's usually two things. One is the the money, mm -hmm. right? Five hundred dollars for the five hundred pounds for the brand deal, um, and then the other is the skills from it. Yeah. And I think it's really important to separate those. Yeah. And so when you're looking at taking on this project mm. um, or, or, or something that you're building yourself, li list out, okay, what do I get from it? Yeah. You have the two columns, you know, uh, 500 pounds, these relationships, right? Yeah. And then here are the skills. Okay, this is my, I'm negotiating my first brand deal. So how's that going to go? Okay, I, I got to create a contract for that. Yeah. Know? And building that out, maybe I'm going to get get my um, like, TikTok recording process dialed in. This is going to allow me to hire the editor that, you know, yeah. and then I'm going to scale it forward. So being really clear, it's not, you're not getting 500 pounds from it. You're getting all, all of these things. things and it still might not be worth it. Yeah. Right. And you might go like, okay, no, I don't want to go down that path yeah. of just doing branded content. Yeah. And so I'm going to stick with, you know, I'm only going to create my own content on the topics that I want because I'm going to, it's going to be slower, but I'm going to play this long game. And and just be deliberate about it. But I think for the most part in the early days, just keep creating, keep learning. I did a branded ebook for um, another SaaS platform early on because I felt like it would give me more opportunities to learn and try. I ended up not doing any more after that. Yeah. But um, I felt like I'd learned plenty. Yeah. So the other principles are like, you can skip ahead, but you have to learn the lessons from each step. I think we already yep. kind of talked about that. Apply your existing skills in a new way to build wealth. Um, there's a difference between working for a better wage and truly building wealth. I think that's a really interesting one. What is what does that mean? Well, I think a, I'm trying to remember what I said in the article, but I, I think there's a lot of different ways that people increase their income and don't actually build wealth. Yeah, I, I kind of touched on this in the Billion Dollar Creator article where. A lot of creators are focused on how do I make more cash flow now? Mm. And they're not actually doing something that's going to build long-term wealth. And you need both, right? Yeah. Like rent's got to get paid. Yeah. And uh, we want to be able to go out to dinner with our friends and family and, and uh, buy our, all our equipment and whatever else. But I see a lot of people chasing short-term revenue once they get to a certain level. Yeah. Let me give you an example. Um, Oh, there's a creator named Mark Sisson. 
and when like the paleo diet and all that was becoming really popular in, I don't know, 2010 to 2014, something like that. Um, he had a, a blog called Mark's Daily Apple. Uh-huh. And it was about health and fitness and nutrition, particularly this paleo diet. And it got really popular. And I estimate that he was making about a million dollars a year mm. off of this at a time when that was just an insane amount of money. Yeah. Right. I mean, it's still an insane amount of money. But now I could list a ton of creators at that level. Whereas at the time, it was just, you know, a decade ago, there's just a handful. Um, and he, so he's monetizing through, through courses. I think maybe he had some meal plans, uh, plenty of affiliate revenue, some advertising, all of that. If you think about uh, a blog and newsletter like that, it seems pretty well optimized. Yeah. Right? A million bucks a year. Something that I argue is he's captured all of this attention. Yeah. And he can direct it. Like the, the course and affiliate revenue is not the highest hour place to direct no. it. And so what he does next, I, I think is just absolutely fascinating. Every creator should study as he goes, okay, wouldn't it be nice if there was like ketchup, mayonnaise, and salad dressings that matched the paleo diet? And mm-hmm. so you're not like, oh, I'm making this thing from scratch yeah. and all of that. Uh, you're just like, great, I can buy this in the store or I can buy it online. Uh, and it matches my diet. So he starts something called Pr- uh, Primal Kitchen. Mm-hmm. He... Uh, builds that up, gets uses his immediate audience to get the first distribution. Mm-hmm. Uh, he starts to get it featured in, like in grocery stores, and yep. they'll run like these small tests in a grocery store. And what he does then is he takes his email list, geotargets the email list, and so it's like, okay, who on my email list is within fifty miles of Austin, Texas, where like Whole Foods is running this little test? And he says like, hey, guess what? Like Primal Kitchen products are now in this Whole Foods. Like, yep. go buy it. And he talks to the grocery store rep, like, oh, so you guys ran that test? Have the How'd that go? Yeah. It's like, amazing. We sold out. <laughs> and then you're like, well, yeah, because I just emailed yeah. like 5,000 people yeah. and said, go buy this right here. And so they spread to more stores and, and on from there. Uh, within two years, he sells it for, I think, $150 million. Wow. So when you think about what is the highest ROI place you could direct this audience, yeah. you're like, a million dollars a year, that's incredible. Yeah. <laughs> it's nothing compared to what you could create. Mm-hmm. And this is the same playbook that years later, like Ryan Reynolds uses, mm-hmm. where he's going, Okay, I could be the spokesman for your product, mm-hmm. and you'll pay me five hundred grand, a million dollars, or whatever. And the the hourly ROI on that is insane, right? He's like, I just have to show up, record for a day, shoot some commercials, get paid, I assume a million dollars, and walk out. And he's like, yeah. Let's do this all the time. This is amazing. Yeah. But instead, he looks at it and is like, Wait a second. If you're willing to pay me a million dollars to do this thing, it has to be worth more to you. Like you're not an idiot. He. So how is it worth more to you? It's like, well, this builds the brand, gets in front of a lot more people, and sells a ton more products. And so it's like, cool. I'm only going to do that for products that I own now. Yeah. And so Aviation Gin, Mint Mobile, right? These are companies that he uh, bought a portion of and then scaled his own with his own face and attention marketing. Yeah. And then exited both of them for like Aviation Gin was like seven eight hundred million. Yeah. Something like that. And Mint Mobile sold for $1.3 billion. And it's like, oh, okay. That's the billion-dollar creator idea. That's it's the highest. Blowing, isn't it? Yeah. And when you look into all of these people, it's like McGregor, Cody Jenner. Yep. Uh, they've all run this 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 playbook. And then we're, we're starting to see, like, amazing creators. There's the gardening um, guy, Eric, 
Oh, I don't know. Him, I can't remember him, but like, yeah, yeah you'll have to send me the example he, later. They, they, you're kind of like got these traditional stars doing it, and you've got these like out and out, um, kind of cr- digital first creators. Yeah. If you're if you're like a a creator who's who's up and coming, how should you think about building your flywheel? And yeah, and why is it important as well? Because I've got a really good friend who was a who was a YouTuber who grew his channel to nine hundred thousand subscribers, and then completely like fell out of love with it, burnt out. And he'd spent all these years building this channel to a level and then he's all of a sudden got nothing. So I think they're also quite important in in a way for like diversifying away, right? From you being reliant on brand deals and YouTube AdSense. Right. Oh man, there's so many different directions we can go in this. So so first there's tons of examples, like we can name all of the big ones, right? Yeah. Um, you know, like if you look at all of these actors and musicians, mm. most of the wealthiest ones are not wealthy from their, you know, salary for the, yeah. or what they sell in records or what they got paid for the the TV deal. Yeah. Right. George Clooney with Casamigos tequila, mm. right. You know, you get, a, I think he cleared 300 million or something yeah. in that exit. Um, there's tons of these examples and you can apply that in the same way like it's happening at every level. Yeah. I am following this playbook with ConvertKit. Yeah. Right. I could be selling digital products and all that. I chose to sell SaaS. Yeah. SaaS gets, and you were making 200K a year selling, selling yeah. ebooks. Yeah. So, and you could have kept doing that quite Yeah. Quickly. I think I, I could have gotten that business to now probably to about to a million a year. Yeah. Um, like looking at what other people have done, that's 500,000 would be pretty straightforward and a million um, would be great. But now, like if you think about the the enterprise value created from ConvertKit, um, we did a small secondary round and team members sold shares two years ago at a $200 million valuation. We'll do it again um, later this fall and I think it'll be a $320 million valuation. And so mm-hmm. it's just, it's on another level. Uh, Rachel Rogers, my co-host, she's doing the same thing with her um, uh, coaching and speaking business. Instead of doing it on a small scale, she's like, okay, how do I create something that's worth you know, tens and ultimately hundreds of millions. And there's these structural differences that that you make in it. So that's one thing that I think is interesting. You brought up the the other side of it, which is like the sustainability. Yeah. And that gets into this idea of a flywheel. Do you think your audience knows what a flywheel is or should I? Well, break this, let's, let's break, break it down. Yeah. Okay. So uh, the idea behind a flywheel is it, it works actually in physics and it's taking continuous momentum. Mm. So years ago I was in Lesotho, which is this little landlocked country inside of South Africa. Um, and we were working on to install a well at this orphanage. And because electricity was pretty inconsistent in in Lesotho in whatever that was, 2008, uh, we decided we wanted to install a pump that wouldn't require electricity. So you'd think normally you'd have a hand pump on that. Yeah. Like that's what we use at a campground, you know, something like that. That's fine for the weekend. That's not what you want when like a hundred people are relying on this yeah. for their main source of water. And so instead what we installed is a flywheel, which is like this big, heavy metal wheel mm. that sits on top. And what's interesting about a flywheel is instead of this up and down motion of a pump where there's a direct correlation between how much effort you put in and the results that you get out. Yeah. Instead, it's this continuous circular motion and when you start, like when I was turning the flywheel to get it going, uh, my friend Luke was on one side and I was on the other and we're both, like it's hard to get started. Like yeah. we're 
we're braced, we're pushing, we get it going. After it gets momentum, it starts to get easier. And then he can step away mm. and I can keep spinning it. And then I can drop down to one hand. And then eventually I can keep it going basically just with a couple fingers. Yeah. And, and it's just, it produces a steady output. So there's basically three laws of a flywheel as I define it. First is that um, each step like flows smoothly into the next. It's a con continuous circular motion. Yeah. The second is that it gets easier with time. Mm -hmm. uh, and then the third is that it produces more yeah. with time. And if you think about those like laws two and three in particular, it kind of sounds too good to be true, right? Yeah. When you're like, you know, you must be selling something, right? This is, you're saying it gets easier with time yeah. and produces more. Yeah. Like there's no way. But this works in real life physics mm -hmm. um, and it, it definitely works online. Um, and there's a bunch of examples of it. But the reason that I think, like if you talk about a friend doing YouTube and getting to 900,000 subscribers and then burning out is because you can get to these levels through a lot of hard work on scattered things. Yeah. Right. What are you going to do today? You should yeah. jump in like, okay, I guess let's negotiate this brand deal and let's record this YouTube video and let's start a podcast and let's pub do every day. Yeah. Tons of effort. Yeah. And um, if you are at the pump every day for a long time, then you can get the results from it. Yeah. And it's probably going to cost you a lot. Yeah. And so what I think is fascinating is the people who implement flywheels mm -hmm. and get just some pretty crazy results. So if we go back to um, the direct sales example, yeah, right, for ConvertKit, there was a flywheel operating there. I didn't know enough at the time to describe it as a flywheel, mm -hmm. but now I can see it where every person that I reached out to, yeah, right, then um, I'd have those sales calls and I'd be refining my marketing copy and learning mm -hmm. on there. I would then, the deals that I closed, I would do the concierge migration. Mm -hmm. That would get me another testimonial, another name. Yeah. I would ask them for referrals, which would then give me more people that I could reach out to. And, oh, and, and then I guess somewhere in there, I'd use the money earned to make the product better. Yeah. Right? So it's pretty simple. Instead of like, okay, I'm going to do this type of marketing and we're over here doing this and that. I was like, nope, direct sales in the flywheel and I'm just going to keep turning that. And it was really hard at first. But then each rotation the product got a little more, a little better, had a little more credibility from another client. I got better at the migrations um, and, you know, I, I closed more deals. And so I got to the point that I got easier and easier and easier. Word of mouth kicked in, referrals got better and on from there. Another example would be, let's say you write a weekly newsletter. Mm. You got to come up with content for that yeah. every week. And that gets pretty tiresome. Mm. Or like, a YouTube idea, right? Like all of this gets tiring. And so you can, there's a flywheel you can implement that gives you endless content ideas. And it's actually really, really simple. And with uh, kind of the interesting thing is that a lot of these flywheels are very small tweak yeah. from what people are doing now. Yeah. So we have new subscribers coming into our newsletter. When they come in, they're getting some automated emails. Yeah. Say email two or three, somewhere in there. It's like, all right, we're teaching in my case, right? Teaching you how to design iOS apps. Yeah. In one of those emails, I'm gonna ask a question. Say, hey, what's your biggest frustration with learning how to design iOS apps? Yeah. Hit reply and let me know. Yeah. Right? Two sentences in an email. And that is what like turns this into a flywheel. So it's very, very simple. When people reply, they're saying like, oh, I was trying to set this thing in interface builder and it didn't make sense. I was Xcode and I'm so confused and blah, blah, blah. And that reply 
I have going into a label in Gmail. Mm -hmm. Or you could use Zapier and put it into something fancier yeah. or whatever. Then when I am looking for something to write, I go into that label in Gmail and I'm like, uh, that one seems interesting. Yeah. And I write an answer to that. And then that goes out to my newsletter and gets published to the web, which helps me get more subscribers. So it goes around. So the more subscribers I have, the more responses I'm getting, yeah. the more content ideas I get, yeah. that's reaching more. So it's getting easier with time. And then also the bigger the audience gets, each story is going out or each uh, essay or whatever is going out to more and more people. Mm. So I, I am both, you know, I have a continuous loop. I, it's getting easier with every rotation. Mm -hmm. uh, and then it's producing more with every rotation. Yeah. And that's what takes it for me from, shoot, how am I gonna create content every yeah. single week to like, it's like starting. What do you mean? It's just, and it's like the difference between starting from zero every day. Yeah. To having that, like you say, you're you're already on level two, level three, level five, level ten. Yep. Like every day, you've already got like mm -hmm. all of that year's work working for you already. Yeah, it's an amazing framework. Yeah, and so I apply flywheels to absolutely everything, and uh, that's just one of the uh, one of those concepts that like once you see it, you can't unsee it. Yeah. And I'll spend all this time either on paper or um, I use FigJam, uh, which is from Figma, you know, just like a whiteboarding tool to just like try to sketch out as many different flywheels as I can. So Another example of a flywheel, someone who does it really well is a creator named Sahil Bloom. Yeah. And I talk about him in the article. He is laser focused on getting to a million subscribers uh -huh. with his email list. Now that's one thing that I'll point out. A lot of times when people mess up a flywheel, it's because they're trying to have it serve too many goals. Yeah. So I mean, what's the goal of the five? I'm like, okay, so the, this flywheel, it should make me money. It should grow the audience. It should build my reputation. And you're like, okay, no, no, no. A flywheel should have one job. Yeah. In this case, Sahil's flywheel's job is exclusively to get subscribers. Yeah. And so what he does is he starts off with content on social. Mm -hmm. So Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn are his three main channels. And then he is driving those people into his email list through uh, lead magnets, opt-ins, things that he's giving away. Mm. And then after that, he has something called the creator network, which is a convert offering where we let you pair up with other creators mm. and recommend each other after the sign up. Yeah. So what that means is that when you sign up to his newsletter, he's like, hey, thanks so much for subscribing. Why don't you also check out James Clear, Ryan Holiday, and Tim Ferriss? And you're like, well, how do you do that? Yeah. Well, because when someone signs up for James Clear, it says, thank you so much for subscribing. Why did you also check out Sahil Bloom, mm -hmm. uh, Ryan Holiday, and Mark Manson? Yeah. You know? And so they're sending each other thousands of subscribers every day. Mm. And so they're growing like crazy because of that. So he has just doubled the effectiveness of his traffic right there. But then as someone goes into his email flow, he's sending two emails a week. And ConvertKit, through our sponsor network, is selling advertising mm -hmm. on, his, um, on his emails. Yeah. He is then taking all of that money that he makes yeah. and he's reinvesting it into, and this is why he's like our ideal customer, into another product of ours, uh, which is our paid recommendations network. Yeah. Where you can go on there and say, hey, I'll pay $2 for every engaged subscriber that another creator sends to me. Mm -hmm. And so he's going on there and saying, hey, I'll, I'll 25 grand a month, you know, I will uh, put it up there, send me engaged subscribers, I'll pay for them. And that completes the loop because he gets more subscribers. Yeah. So if you think about this, right, we have a, a perfect loop. It goes all the way around and turns. It starts really turning really slowly. If you think like, okay, what does this produce in a month? Mm -hmm. The first rotation, 
maybe he's got 100,000 subscribers on the list, uh, like which is what he was at when he set this up. Maybe he's making $10,000 a month yeah. in sponsorship revenue. And so at $2 per subscriber, um, he's making, getting 5,000 subscribers, mm. right? So that's, that's decent. But now he's got 500,000 subscribers on the yeah. list. He's making $50,000 a month in yeah. sponsorships, right? Like that's 25,000 subscribers that he's paying for. And so you have this snowball effect yeah. where it's just producing more and more. And so just uh, from January, or I guess last December to uh, the beginning of September when we were recording this, he went from a little over 100,000 subscribers to 500,000. And he'll hit a million in the next six months or so because he's just laser focused and this just keeps compounding. And then also, you know, the faster his list is growing, the other bigger creators he can partner with. Yeah. Because he can send them subscribers. Yeah. So it's like this infinite game that he's playing and it's like just totally everything yeah. cycling around. It's, yeah. It, it's brilliant. And it comes down to that laser focus. Um, and even when you're talking just now, you, 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 you've, made me think of another like framework that you have, which is the strip malls, the versus skyscrapers. skyscrapers yeah. Because you've just listed off like five different products within <laughs> your product <laughs> that are all uh, part of ConvertKit, right? right? So you've got your, the Sahil's running his email, mm -hmm. um, email marketing software. He's got the automations. He's got the automations. <laughs> He's got the sponsor network mm -hmm. and he's got the referrals, which is Sparkly. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Which is a company we acquired back in the spring. So you've created like this behemoth, this skyscraper, right? But yep. your alternative was like you could have created maybe five or six different things or spent some right. time on the ebooks or how do you think about that, that framework? Yeah. Well, I think there's the idea that people talk about of being a serial entrepreneur. Yeah. Right. Like, uh, and it's a, a point of pride to say like, oh, I've started 10 companies, mm. you know, or I've done all these things. And something that I often think of is like, if you took all that effort and put it into one company, yeah. how big could it be? Yeah. Now there are people who start a lot of companies and do it really well. Sahil is actually one of them. Mm -hmm. um, and what, like his whole game that he's playing is fascinating. Yeah. We could get into that more later, but um. I think a lot about building this one thing yeah. into a really tall skyscraper. And so for ConvertKit, there's a lot of ideas that we've had mm. that would increase the footprint of the product and be like, okay, we're over here, we're over here. That I've resisted over the years because it would take away from the skyscraper idea. And so now these additional business units that I've built out, the only reason I did it is because I know how they fit together in the flywheel. Mm. Right, in this case, Sahil has an insanely successful flywheel and we're running every step of it. Yeah. And we can make more money at each stage and he's thrilled because he's getting more and more results. And so like our sponsor network, you know, on one hand it's crazy, we're a software company and we basically started an advertising agency mm -hmm. of like, we will go sell sponsorships on your behalf. Like why would we, you know, yeah. that doesn't get the same multiples, you know, for evaluation and it's not as reliable and you know, like at the end of last year, the ad market took a big yeah. dip. And like when Silicon Valley Bank melted down, um, a bunch of advertisers like pulled out. And that's a level of volatility that we don't have in the core business. Yeah. Um, but we realized that this fits in really well, right? If someone's thinking of switching over and they're like, oh, $500 a month, like, oh, that's kind of expensive for my 
whatever, 80,000 subscriber email list. I'm not sure if I want to do that. And we're like, we can sell at least five grand a month in ads on yeah. your newsletter and we'll guarantee that. And yeah. they're like, oh, done. You know? Yeah. And so not only do we easily win their subscription yeah. revenue, uh, but then we make more money, you know, off of a 20% commission for selling their ads. Yeah. But then the goal is to switch it as much as possible from people thinking about like I pay ConvertKit. Yeah. And we want everyone to think about ConvertKit pays me. Yeah. And that that's so powerful. And so all of these things fitting together really closely in an integrated way uh, is our own flywheel. Uh, and then, you know, that builds into a skyscraper instead of a very scattered strip mall. Yeah. It's uh, quite a compelling offer, isn't it? Yeah. It's your kind of Alex Hormozzi, your kind of no-brainer, million-dollar offer. Yep. Uh, yeah, it, it's fun just how it's all come together because the business is fundamentally different than it was a year ago. Mm. Right, like basically exactly a year ago is when we launched our sponsor network. And it, it going, going back to the idea of sticking with something for a long period of time, yeah. right? Like we have some really good months and some really bad months and it yeah. was all around. And even people on our team were like, are we going to keep doing this? Like yeah. we had this forecast of like getting better consistently mm -hmm. and, and we did not hit it at all. Uh, and so there was a lot of reasons like, okay, try to experiment, shut it down. But I know that first two year revenue graph, and I think I'll make this analogy sometime for the team, is like overlay the first two years of ConvertKit and then the first year of our sponsor network. Mm -hmm. And obviously the sponsor network's way bigger from a platform, but it but it's this like inconsistent, yeah, not an obvious thing to stay with. Mm -hmm. Uh but I know that like I know this can work. And so like figuring out the dynamics of it and being really patient. The way that I think about it is uh someone just told me this the other day. Um of you should be impatient with action yeah. and patient with results. Yeah, that's really nice. And so that's the way that I think about it. I'm like, I'm very impatient with how do we get this up? How are we selling deals, getting money to creators and all of that? But when it's not working right away, I'm very patient. Mm -hmm. And so actually this month, um, well, I guess August, the month we just closed, was our best month for the sponsor network by far. Mm -hmm. And we now have the sustainable baseline of recurring deals and all of this where it's like, okay, we're not going to jump around. It's we're actually selling things really meaningfully. Yeah. And it took, you know, 14 months yeah. of experimentation and everything to do that, even at our scale of, you know, millions a month yeah. in revenue. What have been the worst moments uh, building this? And oh, man. Um, I mean, there's a lot of times where, like losing team members, mm -hmm. there's definitely people that you build really close relationships with that either need to move on for their own reasons or like they're not the right fit for the role yeah. uh, in the company anymore. And that's really hard. There's plenty of cases where the company grows faster than the individuals. Yeah. Um, so, so that sucks. There's uh, plenty of things over the years, you know, in 10 years of running a company, you, you compete with a lot of different companies. Yeah. And there are times in that where it's like, oh, like, are we going to come out on top? Who knows? Um, other worst moments. <laughs> there was uh, a whole thing. I wrote an article on this on rebranding the company. Yes. Uh, <laughs> and uh, if anyone wants to read it, it's on, on my blog, NathanBerry.com. And it's titled There and Back Again, yeah. which is a little nod to the, uh, the Lord of the Rings. But um, 
then like the, the story of like rebranding a company to Seva and then branding it, like changing yeah. it back. Um, I still have a $350,000 domain name. Um, <laughs> if anyone wants to buy Seva.com, uh, I've got that. You mentioned Sahil earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, who, who are the creators you look at at the moment who you think, wow, they are absolutely killing it or they are really like playing this game well? Yeah, a phrase that Rachel and I have been using on our podcast is who's playing chess when everyone else is playing checkers? Yeah. And I'll give you two quick examples of that. One is Sahil because I, I was interviewing him actually at Craft and Commerce. We were doing this workshop and I was talking about flywheels. And he's like, you know, you keep talking about my flywheel, which he and I designed together and, and all of that. Um, you know, as I earlier described it. But I think of that as like my micro flywheel, the macro oh. flywheel. And everyone else is like, what? Yeah. This is, uh, they're like, they thought that was a flywheel at a huge level and mm. they're like micro flywheels for how he runs his content and all that. He's like, no, no, the actual macro flywheel that I'm doing is basically the billion dollar creator playbook. Mm. And what he's done is he looked at everything that he was spending money on. Yeah. Right. Uh, Amazon has this idea of turning cost centers into profit centers. Yes. Uh, and so they drive the bulk of their profit from Amazon Web Services, uh, which ConvertKit contributes heavily to. <laughs> um, and that was them saying, hey, we spend the most money on web hosting yeah. and servers. And so let's start. We've built all this great infrastructure. Let's sell it mm-hmm. and turn this cost center into a profit center. And now it is like many, many billions a year in profits. Yeah. Um, and so Sahil said, I want to do the same thing for... Uh, my business. And mm-hmm. so he went and looked through everywhere that he was spending money, uh, video editing clips, um, newsletter growth, uh, copywriting, design, all of this. And he started he started ag- agencies mm-hmm. in the, those spaces. And there's this thing, so I guess first with an example with an agency, what he realizes with design, for example, he'd have these carousels on LinkedIn. Yeah. Right, designing something out really well, and then as you flip, as you flip through the carousel, you get to the end to, of it, and be like, "Oh, and sign up for my newsletter and all that." And if you flip one more slide, it says, "If you like this, here's the agency that made it." Yeah, and it's yeah. an agency that he has, and he'll post the link in the comments as well. And it will drive a huge number of leads from yeah. his audience because people are like, "Oh, I want like that was really good. I want to copy it and have that too." Um, there's a thing. I don't know if it's a thing in the UK, but in the US, you get travel hackers. Uh huh. Yeah. So basically, it's if you're sitting on an airline flight and like United comes out and they're like, sign up for the United Mileage Plus Explorer mm-hmm. card or whatever, you could get two free flights. Mm-hmm. And most people are like, sweet, I'd love two free flights. Mm-hmm. And there's a type of person that goes, what happens if I get more than one credit card? Yeah. What if I get 11 credit cards? What if I, you know, and like, yeah, yeah, yeah. How, play it again. how could I play this game? Yeah. Never pay for a flight ever again. Yeah. Um, which 100% works and it's fantastic. And uh, yeah, I love it. Sahil is that person for agencies. So most people are like, okay, I have this audience and I can use it to drive leads my, for my agency. Yeah. And he goes, agency? Singular? Yeah. What if I started 11? Yeah. And that is exactly what he's done. So he has all of these different agencies. Right? So our mutual friend, Ali Abdal, uh, has a, a YouTube production agency called Hey Friends yeah. with Sahil. Sahil, yeah. Um, and there's a... He, just a bunch of these. Sahil and I started a newsletter growth agency together called Paperboy. Mm. Um, 
because so many people were coming to us and saying, okay, what do you do? What are these playbooks? How do you implement it? Um, and we'll teach it and talk about it endlessly on podcasts. But then someone's like, can I just pay you to do it? Yeah. I was like, okay. So we hired a CEO. We scaled that up. And so Sahil is getting to the point where we, across these agencies, he's got operators on each one. So he is not in the weeds on any one of them. Yeah. And it's just absolutely massive. Like the the revenue, if you think of, okay, if you've got a 500,000 subscriber email list and yeah. a million followers on Twitter, what is the most revenue you can generate? You're like, okay, well, let's sell a traditionally published book. Let's get some uh, some courses going and all of that. And he's using his private equity background. He's like, no, let's just start companies. Yeah. And these are, they're going to be, like my prediction is that uh, within five years, Sahil's agencies will be doing over 50 million a year in revenue. Yeah, phenomenal. Um, probably more. So that's one example. Yeah. Um, Love that. Another example, let's see, chess, one of the people that are playing checkers, like uh, Ryan Holiday is very, very prolific. Yeah. What's interesting is both like Sahil and Ryan, neither of them work, they're not like grinded out people. Maybe they were at one point, but now they know like what's high leverage and they get their writing in and and they have like pretty flexible uh, days and all that. He just goes out on the farm, doesn't he, with his GoPro and yep. does some writing, then goes out on the farm with his GoPro. Yep. And then That's... like turns it turns it turns it back on him and goes like, okay, so stoicism. <laughs> yeah. Um so Ryan was talking about uh something on a podcast that I'd forgotten about that uh Tim Ferriss actually owns the audio rights to um, The Obstacle is the Way. Interesting. So like, well, how does that come about? Mm. And there was this interesting moment in time where Audible was getting popular and audio books were getting very popular, yeah. but publishers didn't value them yet. Okay. And so Tim and a few other authors had these early numbers being like, wait a second, there's a lot of sales yeah. coming in on audio. Yeah. And there were these books where the audio rights would get sold in a bundle. Yeah. And then not... Um, like the publisher wouldn't exercise them and mm -hmm. they'd sell them off to someone else. Mm -hmm. So there's another author, Josh Kaufman, who uh, he talked about, um, he writes a book called The Personal MBA. Yeah. And he sold all the rights to it to a publisher as you normally do. And then the publisher turned around and sold the audio rights to somebody else and then they were going to like sell it to someone else. He's like, can I just, can I buy those back? And so he bought the audio rights back, um, published it himself on Audible and it took off. And Audible had this deal where they would pay you for every X number of units you sold, you get an incremental higher percentage of each copy sold. Wow. So it got to the point where Josh was making fifty to sixty thousand dollars a month off of Audible because it was nice. a very popular audiobook. Yeah. And Tim understood this. And so he went around buying the audio rights to all of his favorite books. Brilliant. And including the obstacles away, because it was the same thing. And we we're like, oh, this is a niche book. People aren't gonna care about it. You know, is it even worth me? You know, all of this. And of course. It's now sold. That's crazy genius. numbers of copies. And so I think looking at these examples of creators finding something that is currently under underpriced mm -hmm. uh, and undervalued and saying like, oh, I want to own the equity in that. Yeah. Right. So Tim is is taking money he's making from royalties for, you know, his four hour series of books and then saying, okay, what else can I own with that? And you think that's crazy that yeah. like another author yeah. <laughs> owns the yeah. audio rights to all of these books. And like, he's just paying a huge amount of money. And so I think that's interesting. I think also Ryan Holiday has this crazy back catalog of books. Yeah. Where, oh, I guess he's making $200,000 a month or more mm -hmm. off of just the 
the book sales from his back catalog. Yeah. Another example. <laughs> uh, Ryan, so Ryan lives outside. His farm is in Bastrop, Texas, which is, I think, maybe 40 minutes outside of Austin. Yeah. Uh, he's very, very rural. And uh, he started a bookstore mm. in Bastrop, Texas. Mm. I'm going, how much could a bookstore mm. in a small town actually make? Yeah. Well, Ryan sells a lot of books. Yeah. But he sells most of them on the internet. Yeah. Uh, and so he is plugged in with, through his bookstore. He's plugged into the um, book reporting thing so that sales through his bookstore count for like the New York Times bestseller list and all that. Interesting. In a way that like Amazon and other sales sometimes do, sometimes don't. It's a little mm. complicated. Um, so normally if an author was like, hey, I'm going to sell all these books through my own site. Yeah. They need, if they want the books to count yeah. towards the bestseller list, they need to sell it through a bookstore. Yeah. Which means more money is going mm. to that bookstore. Yeah. So that is 100% true in Ryan's case as well. He just also owns the bookstore. Bookstore, yeah. <laughs> and so he's like, okay, I'm able to do this. Uh, and like cut out another step and make, you know, another dollar to $3 per book. Because he is both the author and the bookseller. I guarantee he's top of that list as well. Yeah. Oh, it definitely helps. And so you'll watch him do, when he has a book coming out, he'll be like, okay, we're si selling signed special editions mm. if you buy it through the painted porch bookshop yeah versus if you buy it on amazon where yeah. you like you just get that right so driving away more sales making a higher cut of each thing um another example uh, i'm a huge taylor swift fan yes and genius. she she is absolute genius in all of this one quick thing in my billion dollar creator article which i wrote maybe 2019 or yeah. 2020 something like that i have a line in there where i'm talking about how I, at the time her net worth was 300 million. Oh my word. Wow. Um, <laughs> and I talk about how like no amount of music sales and touring is going to get her to that billion dollar level, yeah. right? She must have uh, read the article. And I, I think she read the article and took it personally. She you know, it's like yeah. if you uh, watch the Michael Jackson, yeah. Michael Jackson, uh, Michael Jordan yeah. documentary. And I took that. And I, you know, I took watched that. that and I took that personally. I think Taylor did that after reading the article. Because <laughs> she's now at 2 billion in ticket sales just from her tour. Yeah. Um, which is insane. But the thing that she just did, so there is a, um, it used to be, let's see, when a, when a film goes to theaters, there's three groups involved in that. You have the, the production company that actually made it, mm. the distributor, and then the theater. Yeah. Right? So you could have Pixar, Disney, and then AMC, right? Yeah. Whoever the theater is and all that. Um, the production and the distribution are allowed to be owned by the same company. Yeah. But until recently, uh, the distributor, the the movie theater could not. And mm -hmm. there was a court case in the United States that changed that uh, a couple of years ago. So now in theory, someone could own the whole chain. Mm -hmm. And it's sort of starting to decouple a, lot, um, a bit of this. And so uh, Taylor Swift with the Arrows tour filmed, it cost between 15 to 20 million to produce a movie theater level experience of yep. the show. And this fall, she's launching it in theaters. But what's really interesting is guess what? She is the producer and the distributor. Yeah. And so she didn't go through any usual production companies and she went straight to the theaters. And so she's making more on every ticket sale. So not only, you know, is she still running the show worldwide, right? <laughs> they do this tour and it'll be 
I mean, it'll be more than $2 billion in revenue. But then also, you're going to be able to pay 15 bucks yeah. at the movie theater. And a huge chunk of that is going to go to her because she cut out more, more of these middle people. And so I, I just see that. I'm like, yep, chess when other people are playing checkers. All these other people, <laughs> yeah, they've, they've basically, oh, they've, they've, they've drawn out their business or their industry yeah. and they're just ticking off every... Every element of it, I'm going to take that in house and take control. And side note, that podcast uh, acquired, is it acquired? They do the Taylor Swift episode. Oh, I haven't listened oh, to that one. Absolutely amazing. Okay. Yeah, and just the, you know, the way that she re-recorded those all, all oh, of those yeah. tracks when yeah. the rights were bought, like that was a, that was a, a chess move again. Chess yeah. Move. Well, and then, um, but what's interesting is it didn't necessarily seem like it at, yeah. at the time. Yeah. Like it really seemed like she was backed into a corner. Yeah. On that one, I was like, oh, you don't even own. The masters for it to bring so to bring Ryan Reynolds back into it, um, right? So he and Blake Lively, his wife, and uh, Taylor Swift are really good friends. Mm. And so Ryan Reynolds has this production company called Maximum Effort, and so they'll turn around these amazing commercials and they'll do it really well yeah. in some really timely ways. So, for example, when um, uh, Peloton did, had this. TV crew commercial that was a huge flop. Yeah, I remember. Um, they immediately, I think within 24 or 48 hours, like it was really fast, recast the same actress in an aviation gin commercial. Yes. And like had this crazy upswing, like mm-hmm. building on that. Uh, and then they also did another one for Peloton where more recently when in the TV show Sex in the City, they killed off a character for having a, I think a heart attack while riding his Peloton. Mm. And then they quickly made a, com- a commercial and, and like, cause Peloton's like losing market cap yep. and then they, they reverse that. Um, but something that was really interesting is uh, Maxima Effort did an ad for match.com mm-hmm. um, called 2020, a match made in hell that uses Taylor Swift's love story, interesting, but Taylor's version. And so it was the very first, um, like TV commercial to use the re-recorded master of it at a time when that's what everyone was talking about. And so it was a, so match.com comes out with this super funny commercial yeah. that uh, is timely because it's the first thing to use these re-recorded masters. And so it gets talked about even more. And so I just love these examples of people like playing on, um, you know, what someone would already talk about. And so like, how do I make something that's, that's great production quality and right away if it's happening. It's timely, yeah. Yeah. It's the it's the it's the fundamental to I mean when we work with our podcast with with podcasts, whenever something is timely, mm-hmm. it's like let's go. <laughs> get yeah, that out there. Get that out there. And they always do the best. Mm-hmm. They always do the best. Did you get an offer from Spotify? Right. Yeah, we did. What was how uh, like how did how did that happen and how did you deal with it? Yeah. Uh Spotify reached out. It was at the time that they were um, really focused on podcasts mm-hmm. and trying to ramp up in that way. And they reached out because I, I kept thinking like, what, what does Spotify want to do with us? Yeah. And we had bought a company called Fanbridge, which is email marketing for music. Mm-hmm. And so I was asking them like, oh, is this why? Right? Mm-hmm. We picked up a bunch of musicians um, as customers. And, and so that was really good for our brand and, and customer base. And I was asking them like, is this why you wanted to, uh, wanted to talk? And they're like, that's how we got on your radar. Yeah. Or the reverse. How we, yeah. How we got on their radar. And they said, but they, what we actually care about is your podcasters. Mm-hmm. I was like, oh, okay, why is that? And they just explained it to me. And they're like, look, 
when somebody goes on Spotify and plays a song, we have to pay, we pay the artist, the the writer, you know, whoever owns those masters, mm-hmm. uh, the studio. Like, the, it's a very long list of who yeah. gets paid. There's often lines. there's many, yeah. often there's many writers that get paid. Yeah. You know, so it's like lots of money going on. Someone goes on Spotify and plays a podcast. We don't pay anybody, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> like. But both are equally good at driving yeah. premium subscriptions yeah. to Spotify. And so when I realized that, I was like, oh, okay. And that's when they went and bought Gimlet and Anchor and did the deals with, oh. you know, with Joe Rogan, with the Obamas, and um, just kind of on, on from there. And so it was right during that time. And they basically wanted to build out like all the podcast publishing and that whole ecosystem. Yeah. Um, you know, we have people like Pat Flynn and... Um, Tim Ferriss and a bunch of others yeah. that uh, Cody Sanchez and others who are running really successful podcasts. And so they're like, this gives us another way to mm. acquire them and provide more services to them. Um, and so we never got to like a formal price yeah. and all that. We're talking the $200 million range. Yeah. And ultimately what I decided is like, I always said like, oh, we're not going to sell. We're not going to sell. And uh, I was like, okay, I got it. This is, I got to actually like sit down and think through this yeah. and journal through it. And basically what I decided is like, no, like if this business is valuable to them, it should be more valuable to me yeah. and uh, I have too many ideas. And so we kept building it up. And then that's how from there I actually had people who on the team who were like, what? We're not going to? Yeah. Right. Cause it's a brand name that you can sell to yeah. a great exit. Uh, and so that's what, how we had to put together a secondary round. Yeah. Cause I needed, I, I wasn't like contractually obligated to, but you know, I felt the need to like give them a way to sell some of their shares. Yeah. Um, and so I thought like turning that down actually resulted in like some huge changes in the business. Interesting. Cause there were like three or four people who had thought, like I always said, we're not going to sell, we're building for the long term. But they and thought, they were like, yeah, you'll come around to it. Yeah. And so when that offer came and I said no, they were like, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah okay. So how do you? Uh, um, how so? How at the moment do you? Did you? How did you? Um, how did you make them happy? Well, I mean, you you can't make other people happy. No, yeah. But, <laughs> um, how did you, but in that, how did you come to like answer that a little bit? That was like, just said like you can sell some some some, some yeah. stock, and then do you do profit sharing or something like that? Yeah, you we do profit you, sharing yeah. as well. So basically, we we created a market where. Um, basically, friends of ConvertKit could come in yeah. and buy shares, yeah. uh, and then any team members who wanted could sell shares. Yeah, uh, and so that that worked really well. And we basically said, okay, this is our new model going forward. We're going to do it every two years. Yeah, um, and so we'll try to have the benefits of being publicly traded without the downsides of like a real time stock ticker yeah. and um, you know the complexity of going public and everything. So, yeah, that's. That's actually worked out really well. A handful of team members uh, left and moved on to other things, and you know we hired great people uh, to replace them. And and now people are like, if, if someone says, "Oh, he's never going to sell," it's like, "Yeah, he probably will." Team members are like, "No, like he yeah. means what he says." <laughs> <laughs> this has been amazing. I've got some some quick fire questions. Yeah. What's the best thing you've done with your money? Oh. Uh, Best thing I've done. Okay, I'll give like couple couple quick answers. A few of my favorites. Truly, the best thing is I sold a little bit of my converted stock um, 
two years ago, mm-hmm. sold one and a quarter percent for two and a half million dollars, and I retired my parents and my wife's parents. And so that was so I threw one one and a quarter percent. It's two and a half million. Yeah, yeah it's it was not bad. It was ridiculous. Um, another fun thing. Uh, I, two quick fun things that I just did. The uh, behind the scenes, like VIP tour at Disneyland, uh-huh. cost like four grand. Skip all the lines. Super super fun. I just did that at Disneyland Paris with my team uh, a couple, two, three days ago yeah. uh, on Friday. Uh, and then my favorite new thing is I've been learning how to fly and I just bought an airplane, which I haven't seen yet because it got delivered while I've been in Europe for the last week. <laughs> uh, but it's a, a little five-seat Cirrus and I'm very excited to That's quite fun. So there, there's your rapid fire <laughs> list of three things. Yeah. Uh, best advice you've ever received? Uh, stick with things for a long time. Results take way longer than you think they will. What gets you fired up? Oh, uh, helping creators make money. Like the number of times that you see someone like make their first thousand dollars on the internet and then they like something clicks. I'll give an example. Uh, There is a newsletter that I wanted to create, a local newsletter in my city. Um, So I made one called From Boise. And I hired this editor. uh, Her name is Marissa and she was experienced content producer, but new to like this creator newsletter world. So I hired her, gave her the idea and, and, and paid her to run it. And she ended up like breathing life into it in a way that I didn't even expect and like mm-hmm. just making it amazing. And so now people think entirely of it as her thing mm-hmm. and that I kind of know I'm involved, but, um, and so it exists exactly the way that I wanted it to. And she made it way better. And so I like made her a 50, 50 partner in it and it's running really well. But there was this moment where she came to our event, Craft and Commerce. And before that, she was listening to my podcast and then she met people there. And you could just tell that like she kind of understood it before. Mm-hmm. And then afterwards, like being immersed in this world, it just clicked. Mm-hmm. And she's like now closing sponsorship deals and she launched her like a paid community um, as part of it. And like it all came together. And she texted me the other day. She's like, hey, we sold $28,000 in sponsorships. Uh, in the month of August and some, you know, for future months too. But like, that's what collected in that month. I was like, Marissa, that's insane. Yeah. (laughs) You know? And so, yeah, it completely fires me up to see people implement these things. uh, Because once it clicks, like these creators are just unstoppable. I think Jack Butcher says that make one dollar on the internet and yeah. they would just completely like <laughs> unlocked a new paradigm in your in your brain. You're like, what? <laughs> the first time that you wake up. Yeah. And you're like, I made money. Yeah. I didn't do it. <laughs> I didn't. You know. Well, I did, but like, right. yeah. um, top three books. Oh, anything you want by Derek Sivers. Um, oh, uh, the Lord of the Rings. Um, what else? Oh, there's so many books. Oh, what else did I put in there? I think uh, rework from Basecamp is really really good. Yeah, we'll go with that list. Cool. Uh, favorite podcast. Oh, I've been listening to fewer podcasts lately. I like switched over to Audible and yeah, I've just been doing a bunch more audiobooks. Um, an audiobook I'm listening to right now is Only the Paranoid Survive by Andy Grove, mm-hmm. which is like, you know, old school Silicon Valley. Um, oh, let's see. I really enjoy the Reboot podcast. Um, I guess I'm wearing their shirt today. Mm-hmm. Um, My First Million. Yeah. Founders is really good. Uh, yeah, that's probably the... 
high level list. Great. And where can people find you? Yeah, my email list is at nathanberry.com. Mm-hmm. Um, podcast is just search for billion dollar creator. Uh, it'll probably be out by the time this releases. Yeah. Uh, we're doing a multi-city tour to launch that. So that'll be a lot of fun. Uh, New York, Nashville, Austin. And we'll probably pick up uh, a couple more cities. Uh, maybe Atlanta, LA. Nice. Um, and then ConvertKit. We, we power all the biggest newsletters on the internet. So uh, if you're looking to make money and build an audience, ConvertKit.com is the place to be. Amazing. I've loved this. Thank you so much, Nathan. Yeah, thanks for having me.